You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. It's a joy to see everybody this morning at Paramount Church. I'm grateful to see your faces and also see some new faces. I hope to meet you after the service, uh, as does Pastor Isaac. Pastor Kevin is away uh, with his family this Sunday. And... Um, And let me invite you this morning to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. For those who are new to our church this morning, or perhaps new on the live stream, I want you to know that we are in the middle of a preaching series called Connoisseurs of Happiness in the book of Philippians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians living in a place called Philippi. And this letter is often referred to as the epistle or letter of joy. And we as a church have been gaining great benefit. I know that I have been gaining great benefit in my personal spiritual life. And and I know that it's true for us as a church, as we have been considering what does it really mean to be happy in Christ? This is one of the fundamental questions that every person in the universe is asking and trying to answer every day. How can I be happy? It's a question that's hardwired into every heart, and we are grateful as Christians who want to make the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, paramount. We are thankful that in the gospel, we find the ultimate answer to that question. How can I be happy? And so what our quest has been with the Apostle Paul over these recent weeks and on through the end of the book of Philippians is to join him on a kind of journey, week by week, verse by verse, into the blazing center of the Christian life. And at the blazing center of the Christian life is something that that sometimes we overlook or something that we often don't reach as we think about what it means to be Christians. Sometimes we stop short because we find other things, good Christian things and, and principles to be practicing and valuing, and yet we are missing out on an entire world of joy and happiness to the glory of God. And so we're trying to keep, as we work through the book of Philippians, this strong, healthy, biblical logic of how all of the Christian life works together. We've been reminded and will continue to be reminded of things like the the kind of famous mantra or life philosophy that has become well known among among some Christians and in our church, that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And that the inverse is true. That I am most satisfied in him when he is most glorified in me. And of course, when we use that word satisfaction, we are not meaning the kind of everyday ordinary satisfaction where things are just okay and I'm satisfied or settling. But we're using that word in the sense of happiness and joy to be captivated with a lasting happiness that transcends and surpasses our circumstances or or anything that may come into our lives by God's perfect will as he cares for us and shapes us and molds us like the faithful potter with the clay, we are reminded over and over again and even this morning that in Christ, our God, who is the happiest being in the universe, 
has granted to us in Christ by faith alone, he has granted his happiness to us in the good news. And we're just going to keep taking steps forward in this so that we can, we can allow God to keep working this into our souls. And this morning we continue in Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. I've entitled this message this morning, Shining as Lights in the World, because I'm simply borrowing the language the Apostle Paul uses in this passage as he talks about what's most important. Where is all of his teaching and preaching and all of the the ministry of the word that he's doing to these believers and now because of the Holy Spirit's work in us, he's doing in us what is the ultimate objective, what is the, the bright shining vision that he is casting for the Christian life. And that is for us to be lights in the world, at least in part. But what we have an opportunity to do this morning, I think, is to practice reaching for that thing that's most important. That we could grow this morning in learning, as we read our Bibles well, to see the treasure that is buried beneath the surface but has been declared to us clearly on the pages of Scripture. We have these kinds of experiences kind of in daily life that remind us of what it's like spiritually when sometimes we miss that, what I called earlier, blazing center of the Christian life because we've stopped short and become captivated by other perhaps good things, but those things are disconnected. Disconnected from the ultimate purpose of the Christian life. You might think of this if you're dieting or trying to change your diet or health. Sometimes when we're dieting, uh, we we choose to eat only low-fat foods or a sugar-free diet. We change our diet to to try to make these improvements, but along the way, we become so focused on certain parts that we are missing actually the finer nutrients that we need. Uh, We're missing out on some of the um, healthy fats and the natural sugars that that come along with a well-balanced diet because we're overlooking what those real nutrients are. You might think about going on a trip as a tourist and going to some new place that you've wanted to see. It's common for for tourists to get caught up in what are the obvious... um, the obvious things to see, like the museums or going to the zoo, but, but in all of the hustle of that plan, miss out on going to the local neighborhood and participating in the local culture and cuisine and gaining from the experience the deep, lasting, rich, undergirding enjoyment of that trip. And friends, I think that the Christian life is often like that for us. And I think it's often like that for us because it's often like that for me. I get caught up in some of the surface issues of my Christian life and I entirely miss the blazing center that God has given to delight my heart and to draw me to glorify him more than I ever could in any other way. So we want to see this morning what does it mean for us to be, as Paul says, shining lights in the world by breaking the passage down into basically three parts of that light, shining a light of purity, shining a light of glory, and shining a light of joy. And considering how each of these have an instrumental role in our lives and in our everyday Christian existence, this pursuit and quest and journey that we're on. Let's begin by looking at verses 14 and 15. This is what Paul says. 
Do all things without complaining or arguments so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Notice first that he gives us this command to do all things without complaining and grumbling, your Bible might say, or complaining and arguments. This is one of those places where we find this very good truth given to us, a command given to us of how we can be like Christ and and one of the markers on this path to the blazing center of the Christian life. But notice that Paul applies here a logic that goes far beyond simply giving commands and orders of what it means to be a good Christian. He is not intending for us simply to stop there and think, okay, here's what it means to be a Christian. Don't complain. Don't argue. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do not taste. Do not handle. Do not touch all of those kinds of things. But his logic is actually leading us into that blazing center. He's on his way to somewhere far brighter and far richer and far more satisfying than simply obeying a rule like don't complain. We see this in this passage, a difference between moralism and joyful living in Christ between legalism and the real happiness of knowing and walking with Jesus in the midst of his glory for his glory and for our good, as we often say. Because sometimes we, and when I say we, I mean I, stop short of the blazing center. I stop short in the logic and I become hung up or captivated simply by the rule keeping that's presented to me in a passage like this. And when I read this passage in that mindset, I prioritize the things that seem easiest for me to grasp. And those are the to-do list items that I could make of the Christian life if I just went through the Bible collecting rules and laws and regulations and do's and don'ts. But so often, that undercuts my Christian life. It holds me back from where Paul's divine logic is going, and I miss out on the blazing center of the Christian life. Think about this passage. Think about how how you read this passage. When you read this passage, what tends to be the priority in your mind that you naturally take away? If you're like me, You come away with a kind of mindset or worldview that can be reduced down to, if you want to be a good Christian rush, you should stop complaining. You should stop grumbling. You should stop arguing. And if I stop short, what do I do? I go off into my Christian life and that becomes the the sole purpose and direction of my life. I sort of repeat the rules to myself every morning. I've really got to stop complaining. I'm going to try today to stop complaining. I'm going to try to kill grumbling in my life. Oh, there I'm arguing again. Let me stop that. And if you keep piling those on because the Bible is full of them, it becomes very difficult to live the Christian life when it is reduced down to merely these rules, moralisms, uh, legalism, something like that. What do you take away from this passage when you read it? 
you might come away like I often do with, I need to stop complaining. But isn't there something brighter? Isn't there something better? Isn't there something far richer and more glorious than simply following a rule that says don't complain? Well, listen to what Paul says. Pay attention to the logic. Why is he saying do all things without complaining and arguments? Is that simply the end of the story for Paul or is he taking us somewhere? Well, obviously he's taking us somewhere because in verse 15 he says, so that, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. We're getting something far richer. What do you want to be? What sounds, what sounds more attractive to the world? What sounds more glorifying to God? If you're known as a person who doesn't complain, or if you're known as a person who is a child of God, or to go even further in Paul's logic, he says that we would be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Which sounds better? To be a person which the world would look at and say, wow, that person never complains. Or, wow, that person's life is like a light. It's like a light of being a child of the living God. Now, I know that the world doesn't look at us and think that because of the the blinders of sin. But nevertheless, this is the kind of life that we're pursuing. This is what Paul is after when he's talking so much in the letter to the Philippians about real and lasting happiness and joy. When we see him at every step on a pursuit of this lasting joy and happiness in Christ. But it has everything to do with the way we see the Christian life and the way that we see the Bible. How do you make sense of the Bible? This is where we need to be, have that reminder of our good, okay, fancy word, hermeneutics. That's a fancy word that just means how we interpret the Bible. What lens do we look through? What are we trying to find? What we're trying to find is not simply what is the list of rules that we need to do so that we can be good people, but we're wanting to know what does Paul want us to know? What is he really saying about the Christian life? Or we don't want to simply know what this passage says to me today as a modern person. I want to know what did Paul intend to say to the people of his time? What's the clear message? Let's get down to the very foundation of the truth that he's communicating. And then we can see how does this apply to my life? This is how we make sense of the Bible. Does this passage or does the Bible exist simply to turn us into good people? Does the Bible exist only to give us the marching orders and rules of life so that we can check off the boxes and somehow make ourselves righteous? Well, when you put it that way, obviously no, that's not what the Bible does, but that's often the way I think about it. And I'm missing, I'm missing out. It's no wonder that I'm lacking for joy and happiness in the Christian life if I'm stopping short and being satisfied with just a list of rules, with a quest of just wanting to be a person who is immune to complaining. But this is the way we think about life. That's why we need our, our minds, our hearts to be enlightened and we need the light of truth to shine in Because this is the way we live our lives. Okay, think about it this way. 
Why, if you drove here today, why did you drive the speed limit? Why do you pay your taxes? Hopefully you pay your taxes. Why do you do it? Why do you follow any of the laws in our country? Well, if you're like me, the natural answer is it has a lot to do with punishment. I don't want to break the laws because I don't want to be in trouble. You see, but there it is again. It's that moralism. It's that legalism. But why do these laws really exist? Do these laws exist to keep everybody in line? Why do we have speed limits? Why do we have tax laws? Why do we have all the other laws in the books? Ultimately, they're good gifts, aren't they? They're good gifts from God, and they're gifts for flourishing. It's because by having these restraints, by having these these plans in place for our lives, we as people can flourish in the world together. The whole world can flourish. It's a similar representation or a similar shadow here uh, or picture here in the scriptures of the Christian life. Why has God given us commands? Why is he telling us, do all things without complaining? So that we won't be complaining people? So that we can wear the hat that says, you know, complaining with a circle around it and a line marking it out? Or is there something more? There is something more. He's saying, do all things without complaining and without grumbling and arguments, because only then will you be able to be a light to the world. Only then will you be able to really enjoy what it means to be a child of the living God. So here's the foundational question. If you're taking notes, foundational question, write this down. Let's think about it, pray about it, meditate on it. I'll do the same. What is the goal of your Christian life on the daily basis? Is the goal, as mine sometimes is, legalism, moralism, so that I can find approval with God on the basis of something like I don't complain? Or is it something bigger and brighter? Is the purpose of the Christian life something like being a light? Something like knowing God and be belonging to Him and, and enjoying what it means to belong to Him, to the good of the world, to the glory of God, and to the gladness of our own souls. Well, yeah, when you put it that way, it becomes obvious. But we need, don't we, the daily reminder of that. Because on the daily basis, that's out the window for me. I go so quickly back to, okay, break the bad habits that you have in your life because that will make you kind of like a good person and you can feel good about your life then. But I need the reminder that there is something more so here's the first thing that we could do with this passage is we could really make it a kind of discipline together that we would before God and with his help to focus our hearts and minds around the ultimate goals of the Christian life, the ultimate purpose of the Christian life. And here, at least in one way, Paul is talking about it in terms of being lights in the world, showing the surpassing value of what it means to be someone who knows God. That's far better. That's far more impactful on our world. And that is far more glorifying to our God 
than simply getting in line. Why are we getting in line? Because we want to be lights in the world. And in particular here, he's talking about living lives that shine the light of purity. So we don't miss that. We're for that. We, we want to pursue purity. Listen to what he says. He wants us to prove ourselves blameless and innocent. That by not complaining, by, by being grateful to God for all that he has given to us, and not being people who grumble and argue, but people who embrace his loving providence in our lives and pursue our identity as children of his, that we would, as a result, show off the purity of what it means to belong to the pure king who saved us. But that takes focus. And so we're trying to focus our minds around these ultimate goals. Here's another one of the lights, the first light, shining a light of purity, Paul talks about here. There's also a sense in which Paul is talking about shining a light of glory. Notice what he says next, but pick up at the end of verse 15, where he says, among whom you appear as lights in the world. He gives another command of something to do. Holding firmly the word of life. And he's putting this in a great, beautiful picture for us, holding firmly to what we know to be the announcement of good news in the gospel. If you're not sure what that means, the gospel, the word gospel simply means good news. And therefore, as we see the gospel painted across redemptive history in the Bible, we find that what the gospel actually is, is an announcement of good news. It is a declaration not of bad news. The bad news comes to us through God's law, all of the commands that we failed to keep, and the law judges and condemns us for it, driving us into the dust. But then the gospel has an announcement of good news for us that is not about me, and it's not about you. It's an announcement of good news about Christ with no mixture of bad news whatsoever. And in fact, no mixture of commandment and to do whatsoever. Because instead, what does the gospel announce to us? Not something that I need to do so that I can get right with God by my own works and effort, but what Jesus did for me so that I could be right with God on the basis of his works and his effort. That is the gospel. And that is the beautiful reality in which we are living as Christians. We're trying to get our hearts and minds around it more clearly. And so he says, hold fast to the word of life. And of course, here's one of those places where I struggle and struggle because when I read that, my mind immediately runs to, read your Bible every day. Yes, I should read my Bible every day. But that's sort of as far as it goes for me sometimes. I just think, um, hold firmly to the word of life. It means read my Bible, memorize the verses, carry it around, make sure I bring it to church. But is that really the logic that Paul is using? Is that where he's going? Is that all that he wants? He wants Bible-toting people to go to churches on Sunday morning? No, in fact, he's saying something more profound, even in those words, hold fast the word of life. Because if you think about the word of life as being something that the Bible contains for us and delivers to us, which is the good news, he's actually saying, hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the glorious announcement of grace alone salvation through faith alone in Christ. 
Hold fast to that. Remind yourself of that. Remind each other of the comforting truth that Jesus loves us in spite of who we are and he has done all to finish his redemptive work, to bring us into his covenant family, to keep us forever and to delight our hearts and souls so that we would have ultimate satisfaction in him. And that sounds a lot better than read your Bible every day. Because we're getting at the heart of what it means to hold fast to the word of life. What does it mean? Why am I reading the Bible? I'm reading the Bible because I want to hold fast to this glorious truth. But again, Paul keeps on with the logic and we have to follow if we want to get to the blazing center. Listen to what he says right after that. Hold firm the word of life so that. He's going somewhere and this is where he's going on the day of Christ, I can... Okay, weird, weird thing to say. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Because this is a word, like, as Christians, we feel like maybe is off limits. But there is a way that it's used, and he uses the word here. So that I can take pride. It's not a sinful pride. It's not a boasting pride, except boasting in Christ, not boasting in himself. It means so that I... On the day of Christ, when Christ returns and finally his, his kingdom is set up in a new heavens and a new earth and there we are with him, I can fill my lungs with, with the air of that world and puff out my chest and thank God because of what he has done in you. That's what he means when he says so that I can take pride on that day. Paul is thinking about that day. That's why he's saying, hold fast the word of life because there's a day coming when I am anticipating my joy and happiness is going to explode in pride over what God has done in the gospel in you. And I want that to be a day of unparalleled happiness and joy overwhelmed by what God has done. That's, what he, that's really what he's saying. So listen to it again. Hold firmly the word of life so that on the day of Christ, I can take pride, but the logic goes on, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. What is he talking about? What would it, why is he concerned about toiling in, in, in vain? What is he hoping is going to happen in the end that will show that his work was not in vain? Ultimately, we know from his other writings and the rest of the Bible that this end moment, this day of Christ, is above everything else. It is a day of glory. It's a day of full and final glory for the King of Grace who has saved his people and brought them close and given them the word of life, which is the gospel. And he has caused them to hold so firmly to it that he's carried them through to the very end into this incredible moment, eternal moment of ultimate and lasting glory. So when Paul thinks about his life, he's not thinking, all right, on today's agenda, Preach the gospel. Just got to make sure I preach that gospel. And at night, he doesn't lay down and say, all right, let me think about the day. Did I preach that gospel? Yep, I preached that gospel. I can lay my head down and rest. That's not what he's thinking about. He's thinking about the blazing center. He's not stopping short with something, something sort of simple and surface like, just go out and give the message. He has somewhere he wants to go. He has a final 
a final dream in mind of what it will be like in the end on the day of Christ when he will stand before him and he will give him glory all because of this work. He's thinking about something else. He's not finding his value of his life. He's not finding his identity. Even in something as a Christian like, I'm a good Christian because I hold fast the word of life. I read my Bible every day and I memorize a verse every week. He is, he is on the pursuit of something more. He's not even really focused on being a good person. You know what he's focused on? He's focused on knowing how good his God is. And he's focused on giving that God glory by delighting in him. That's his ultimate goal. And that's what he's concerned about. He's, he's motivating this kind of worldview among Christians so that in the end, he will not have run or toiled in vain. This is the outlook of his life. He's using some of those helpful metaphors. You think about someone running. Think about that picture. Someone who runs a a long race. And there's all this training and all this work, even on the day of the race and running. And imagine going through all of that. And then in the end, you can't find the finish line. You just keep running and, you, and you're running around in circles and it's been, it's been moved and you can't find it. And now there's, you've run in vain. You couldn't finish the course. Or think about the other one he uses with toiling. You might think about a farmer or a builder who's worked and worked and worked and in the end, there's nothing there. It was all in vain. Paul doesn't want that. He doesn't anticipate that. He knows because God is sovereign and he will have his way that in the end, His people will hold firmly to the word of life. And in the end, he will be glorified. And Paul is anticipating that. It's all about his focus. It's all about his outlook. You may have heard this before. I think it's called the Stonecutter's Creed. It's sort of like a parable story. And it goes loosely like this. Uh, Somebody walks upon three stonecutters. And there they are going about their work. And he asks each of them, one after another, what are you doing? And the first stonecutter simply says, oh, well, obviously, I'm cutting a stone. So he asks the second stonecutter and says, what are you doing? And the second stonecutter says, well, I'm making a living. And then he asks the third stonecutter what he's doing, and he says, I'm building a cathedral. You see, there's a difference of mentality between the three. One just sees the the sort of moralistic, uh, right here, right now, physical thing that's happening, and that's the end of it for him. There's another that thinks a little further out and at least thinks about life and family and paying the bills and I'm making a living, but even then it's just sort of stuck here and stagnant in this current moment. But there's another who's looking forward to to the end result, to the ultimate vision of what the stone cutting really is all about. You see? You see how that applies to your life and mine? Because you and I, we are a lot like the first stonecutter. On a good day, I'm a lot like the second stonecutter. But I really want, I want to be like the third. Because Paul is like the third. Paul is thinking forward about this ultimate moment. So here's what we could take away from this. Is that in our daily Christian life, In all of the everyday disciplines of the Christian life, all of our spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading our Bible and sharing the gospel and, of course, being together at church and encouraging one another and caring for each other, 
we're going to have to really push our hearts and minds out into that blazing center. We have to push ourselves to the third stone cutter. And we have to think about where is all of this going? Why, why are you reading your Bible? Why did you take a, a sick person a meal at church? Why, why are you coming to ABF? Why are you in here now singing and worshiping? We have to keep pushing in so that our answer to that question is, because I'm anticipating a day of glory. Because there's something bigger going on than just going through these motions. And Paul is leading us into this. So what we can do is do what he does, and he is thinking about glory. Of course, we know. He's thinking about God's glory. But there's other glory that he's thinking of. He's also thinking about the glory of these people. And notice that he wants them thinking about his glory as well, his experience of that day. He is thinking about his own experience on the day of Christ, being filled with glory. He's thinking about their experience. He's thinking about God's experience. So that's what we should think about as well. You might even think about some of those people who have gone before you. Can you remember people that, the people that led you to Christ? Can you remember the people that discipled you and, and cared for you in those early days of your faith and they nurtured you on the milk of God's word and you grew up? You have some of those people even today right here. You might be sitting next to them. They're, they're continuing to do this for you and you're doing it for them. Let's think about them. Do you ever think about that? I want to live my life today because I don't want in the end for Max Apple to have any sense that he toiled in vain. I want maximum glory and gladness for Max because he poured so much of that into me. I don't know who your Max is, but everybody has them. So we should think about them. This is a great kind of model that Paul is showing us here because this is the way he's thinking. This is the way he wants the Philippians to think. Because he's saying, hold fast the word of life so that I can take pride on that day. So that I can be with you in the moment and we can see what God has done together and celebrate. That's shining a light of glory. So we're thinking about our lives as lights and we're thinking about how our lights are focused on glory. Purity and glory so far. And here's the last in the brief time that we have remaining is what we've been seeing throughout the book of Philippians. We called it an epistle or letter of joy. And here it is, shining a light of joy. Listen to these words, last two verses, 17 and 18. Listen to this. this. This is incredible. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. So here he is. He's, he's a... He's a, a Incredible, Max Apple, he's pouring into their lives. For, so Max Apple is one of people who discipled me. Hopefully that's coming through clear. I keep talking about this person you don't know, and it's weird, right? So he's pouring into their faith, but listen to what he says next. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. How many times can you use the word joy in, in one sentence? 
He's packing them in. He's packing them into this letter. In fact, his whole life is packed full of them. We've been seeing that already. So let's use this as a chance to answer an objective, uh, uh, an objection that comes up in our hearts as we think about this whole issue of pursuing our happiness in Christ, actually trying every day to become more happy in him. Because that's a concept that's kind of foreign to, to many of us, is that we would do that. We've, it's, it's kind of a dirty word. If you try to be happy, something's wrong, it's selfish. But rather, rather than that, we're seeing in this, in this letter and throughout the Bible, we're seeing the way that that is really what it means to glorify God. It means to be satisfied in Him, and we should be pursuing that. So one of the objections that often comes up in our hearts and minds, mine too, is, so, well, what about when I'm suffering? I mean, you don't expect me to be happy when I'm suffering. You don't expect me to be happy when I'm hurting. That sounds kind of insensitive. Well, what does Paul say? Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Think about that language. That came up just a few weeks ago. Pouring out. Pouring him out onto an altar of sacrifice. And we know that Paul poured his life out every day. I mean, he went through serious sufferings, tribulations, hardships, um, betrayals. It goes on and on for him. And that's why it is even more incredible that the light of the Apostle Paul is shining forth in joy in these words, even if, even if I'm being poured out, I am rejoicing. Even if I'm being flogged again, I'm rejoicing. Even if I'm being beaten with rods again, I'm rejoicing. Even if I spend another night and, uh, in the deep and, and another day shipwrecked, I'm rejoicing. He knows that those two things go hand in hand. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. There's the pouring out language again. So think about the way he sees it. He sees that when his life is poured out in sufferings, it is simply an occasion to pour out joy. That's what he said. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. That's what it means to share your joy. It means to pour it out. So he's saying if my life is being poured out in suffering, I rejoice because it's a, it's a way for me to put on display the surpassing joy of knowing Christ, even in the midst of these hard circumstances. That This joy transcends circumstances. And of course, we see yet again his preoccupation, if that's an appropriate word, with the happiness that comes by knowing Christ. It's, it, it is all over him. It's all over his words. The number of times that he says this. Does God's happiness or joy reach even into our suffering? Is there a place for us to be genuinely happy and joyful even when we're confused and hurt and suffering and things are not going our way or even in the midst of temptation? What does Paul say? Paul says, yes, because that's his central focus. That's where all of this is going. The logic has continued all the way here and then it keeps on going. But you're catching these little mile markers. Look at what he's after He's giving them commands. You too, I urge you. Rejoice in the same way. When you're being poured out, 
Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. It's an amazing picture of what it means to live and to pursue the blazing center of the Christian life. This is not a a side note for Paul. This whole issue of pursuing joy in Christ is not a side note. It is the center. You know, you can relate it to, to again, another picture would be parents, uh, you parenting their kids. No, no faithful parents only have on their minds as parents that I just want to keep my kids safe and healthy. I just want to keep them safe and healthy. That's, uh, that's the end of it. You guys, you, safe, you feeling safe and healthy? I've done my work. That's all I really care about. No. What do I want for them? Why am I keeping them safe and healthy? I want them to flourish I want them to know all of, the, all of the joys of this life in Christ. I want them to know him and enjoy him and to be with him. I want them to know all of this. That's what Paul is saying. He's like a, he's like a symphony conductor who doesn't uh, go up and direct the music simply to get through the piece so that he can go home. He, he's not just up there making sure everybody hits the right notes. He's wanting to, to squeeze out of the orchestra all of the beauty and goodness that he possibly can and to bring it to this ultimate crescendo that will show off what is so magnificent about his work. That's Paul. And that's what he's offering us. That's what he's offering us when he says, share your joy with me. He wants this to be working in them. So the last sort of application here is one that we've been thinking about a lot and we have to keep in our own personal lives working this out in different ways. And it is simply to get on our radar more centrally the maximizing of our joy and offering that joy to everyone that we can. To living with the ultimate reality in mind, not simply settling for the basics of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't complain, read your Bible, go to church, share the gospel, pay your taxes, be nice, don't speed. That's a wasted, wasted Christian life. But the real life, the real blazing center is right here. We want God to work this in us. Of course, this begins by coming to Christ. First and foremost, you cannot know Christ and enjoy Christ until you come to him. And so we're praying all the time as pastors and as a church that people all around, whether you are on this live stream or whether you're here on a Sunday morning, that you, if you are not a Christian, that you will see that Christ is about more. Jesus is about more than just making you a good person. He is about delighting your soul. He is delighting every day. He is happy every day to pour out his joy. That's what he's doing. And we want you to come to Christ and know the joy with us. We want you to be forgiven with us. We want you to be made pure with us. We want you to know the glory of this present moment in Christ and the future glory to come with us. And we want you to know the shining light of the joy that we're so, trying so hard and we're so weak in it, but we're trying to move forward to know more of.
And that comes by repenting of your sin and placing your trust in Jesus, seeing that he's the one who lived, died, and rose again for sinners like us. And that by coming to him, he will welcome you with a smile on his face. And he will happily, happily give you his kingdom because you can glorify him and be satisfied there. And for the rest of us, we're hearing things that are new. We're hearing things that are pushing us outside, pushed outside the, the walls that we have typically had up. And that's good for us. So let's get outside those walls. Let's push into the blazing center. Let's make this Christian life about what it really is, what it is at heart. And that is knowing the happy God of the universe and being made happy by him and for him to his glory and to the good of all people around the world. So let me invite you to stand so that we can pray for a moment about that and then sing again. Go ahead, you can stand now as you're able. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the Philippians and their church. And thank you for ours that you are at work in and among us um, God, we pray that you would cause your word to sink into our hearts and that it would bear fruit and uh, not simply fall to the ground. We want these truths of your good news and your surpassing joy, even in the midst of hardship, that you are, when you grieve with us, uh, or when you walk with us in suffering, that you are offering us your joy. We can have that in you by looking to you. We pray for your help in that. And we pray that our lives would, would become more characterized by, by being lights, lights of purity and glory and joy. And we just pray that you would use us in some small way to be a, a shining representation of your kingdom on this earth and that along the way you would delight our hearts and delight our souls and to make us more like you because that is ultimately what gives you glory and makes us glad we pray this in jesus name amen <music>